I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week. Tim Baker returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest novel, City Without Stars. Tim Baker's debut novel, Fever City, which we've talked about on a previous Little Atoms, was published in 2016 and went on to be shortlisted for the CWA's John Creasy New Blood Dagger. He was born into a showbiz family in Sydney and lived in Roma, Madrid, before moving to Paris, where he ran consular operations in France and North Africa for the Australian Embassy, liaising with international authorities on cases involving murder, kidnap, terrorism and disappearances. Tim has worked on film projects in India, Mexico, Brazil, Australia and China, and he currently lives in the south of France. And Tim's latest novel is City Without Stars. Tim, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me, Neil. Great to be here with you. Would you describe City Without Stars for us, first of all? Right, it's a story that's set over four um, charged days in Mexico in May 2000. And it's about a union organiser, Pilar, who's trying to organise an illegal uh, series of strikes. And uh, her protest is caught up in a war between uh, two cartels, one from Ciudad Real, the fictitious uh, city where the story is set, and Tijuana. And there's also the uh, level of investigations from a detective who's trying to find out who is behind a sequence of shocking serial killings. And I understand that those series of killings in the book are actually based on a real case. That's right, uh, Ciudad Juarez. It was pretty shocking for me when I first found out about it. I had never heard about it before I went to Mexico for the first time in 1998. I began to wonder what was happening because there were so many victims, literally hundreds of women who were raped, tortured and murdered. And then there were hundreds more who just simply disappeared and they were presumed to have been killed. There were no suspects, and also there were no measures of protection taken for the women because they quickly identified the the fact that all of the women were from the same age group in their late teens, early 20s. They're all around about the same size, around five foot six, dark hair, and they all worked in the maquidoras, the the, uh, labor sweat, the sweatshops, the, the factories that lined the border. 
So I pondered upon this enigma as to why these murders uh, kept on occurring and why no one was doing anything about either apprehending them or protecting the women. And this novel grew to a large extent out of, out of my thoughts about that. And you've already mentioned that it's set in a, a fictionalised version of Juarez. Tell us about your setting. Right. Initially, the novel was about twice as, as big as, as what uh, finally came out. And there was a large section that was set in Mexico City and also in some other colonial cities in between Mexico City and the border. Uh, but I decided to compress the story from several weeks to four days. And as I did so, I wanted to keep some of the qualities of the, of, of the landscapes that I had been working on, the, the colonial old towns that I had visited, because colonization is is partly responsible and is a is a in the background of the story throughout the uh, so I decided to create a, a city that would embody these various characteristics of all the cities that I had visited and written about and I also thought maybe it was better just to create a city that could swallow up these stories because the stories were so big and the, the stories of the missing women of Juarez, the stories of the drug wars along the border, and the stories of the indifference of the police towards what was happening. I already alluded to it in the introduction, but tell us then what your relationship to Mexico is. Well, I, I had never been to Mexico prior to 1998, although I had lived in Madrid uh, previous to that. And um, I was initially invited to go to Mexico as part of a, of a film project. It was a, a feature film that was exploring shamanism in Mexico, and it was specifically based around the Sierra Madre and some of the indigenous communities there. And while I was working on that, I also became involved with the second series, which was a documentary that was about the synchronicity of dream cultures around the world uh, with specific reference to some indigenous communities in the Kimberley in Australia and some indigenous, indigenous communities in the Sierra Madre. So my opening into Mexico was an extraordinary one. I fell in love with the country. I loved the people. Um, I, I was blown away by the landscape, by the history. And... I was riding along on a, a very optimistic wave, and then I started encountering these stories about the, the killings in Juarez, the stories about the influence of the narcos. I started meeting people who were influenced by the cartels. And suddenly my feelings towards Mexico deepened, but also darkened. And so I've never lived in Mexico. I've made three trips there. And I continue to keep in touch with some of the people that I initially went to Mexico with. And um, I've also sort of felt the destabilizing of the country through their eyes. Uh, these people are professionals who've worked in media for many years, and they just can't believe what's happened to their country. It's an incredible tragedy for them. And uh, in many cases, it's also ended their careers because they're no longer free to do what they used to do, which was reportage and travel around uh, telling stories and filming and things like that. And it's just become too dangerous for them. So it was a, a love story that has a, a bitter taste to it, but at the same time, as I, as I really would like to, to point out, I don't see this as a Mexican problem. I see it as a much, much larger problem that's affecting all of us in different ways to different degrees all around the world.
Yeah, and I want to come back to that point right at the end of the interview. Um, like Fever City, this is a book that's told from the perspective of multiple characters. I wanted to talk about why you like that approach. It's really strange, but when I start a, a, a book, it's always through a voice. I just seem to come in contact with a particular voice. And I follow that voice on a journey until I bang into another voice. And so that's how I sort of create characters through these voices. And I realized from the very beginning that this story is extremely complex because it's dealing with several issues of enormous importance. And I realized that the best way to tell the story was flag, if you like, each issue with one or two core characters. And over the four days, I wanted to enunciate the, the major themes and then to bring the themes together through the interaction of the characters. But um, I, I just like the multiple voices because for me, it's it's the way I, I work. I, when I write, I write several books at once. I have many different friends. Um, oftentimes when I'm talking to friends, I go from English to French or to Spanish. Now I'm learning Italian, I go into Italian. So for me, this multiple discourse is um, a natural part of my life, but it's also something that excites me. And I, I also think that you can create an incredibly propulsive feel to a book by going backwards and forwards from one perspective to another. And it also offers you the possibility of slowly revealing characters. Uh, I don't like to paint characters in very solid colors. I like to allow them to evolve. And I do that through their voices and through their interaction with, with other characters. Yeah, and I was going to say, and, and that also means that often our impression of Pilar is through other, how other characters see her, and our impression of some other characters is how she sees them as well. It's a, it's a good way to paint a portrait of the other characters using someone else's eyes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I also think it's a, it's a good way to create a portrait of a society or, or a, a town and a moment, in a, a moment of, of great drama and crisis in everyone's lives. By bringing all of these voices together, it gives a dynamic aspect to the, the reader, I think. And you mentioned a couple of times that the, the book is, the story is set over four days, but we do also drop back into the past of of the characters. There's a change in tense. Um, it's not massively signposted. You, know, you don't put the different dates or anything on the on the heads of the chapter. There's just a slight change in tense, and we see something of the of the characters' past as well. And I, that's something you also you also did in Fever City. And again, I think that's a, a really great way of doing it. Tell me something about that. Yes, that's exactly right. In Fever City, it was it was more complex because here in City Without Stars, it's four days in, at the end of May in the year 2000. So you have a sequential period, whereas in Fever City, it was over uh, a much broader timeline, uh, 1960, 1963 and 2014, dropping back to 59, going forward to 64 and dropping all the way back to 1945 as well. So here it was uh, in City Without Stars, it's much easier if you like to follow the timeline but i did want to go back in time and i did use exactly the same technique most of the story in city without stars and fever city is in the present tense but when i'm going back in the past i drop into the simple past and i do this specifically with the story of, of padre Massio, the young vincente salinas who grows up to become a priest and we also get backstory from some other characters including pablo grande a, a shaman uh, and also uh, a local writer, Felipe Mayor. But 
I think it, by going back, it gives us a context which I think that we need. We also get a little bit of the backstory of the narco leader, El Santo, as well. And it, that gives us needed context for the, the story concerning the cartels and why there is a war raging right now. And bearing in mind this is multiple characters, so multiple story strains and this backwards and forwards in time, tell me something about how the book actually comes together. How do you write it and keep all of those things under control? Well, when I do a first draft, as I say, I just, I'm, I'm propelled by voices. So I follow the voices, I try to listen to them, and I, I just follow them and I really don't know where the story is going to lead. So when I began this story, the central mystery, if you like, seeing as it's a thriller, is what or who is behind the killings of these women? And so I had no idea when I began if I would come up with a solution, but I felt compelled to at least try. So the first draft is just a mystery to me, and in a way I think that's uh, in the service of the reader as well, because I'm discovering the mystery in the first place in the way that I hope that the reader will discover it. And then when I get through to the end of the first draft, I take a deep breath, I put it down for a while, then I think about it, then I go back, and that's when I try and make connections clearer or more precise, or sometimes if I feel that the connections are too precise, then I, I change direction. So the first draft is the flood of, of the information, it's the journey, it's the discovery, it's the most exciting part. And then the drafts after that are more about precision and coherence and trying to enunciate the, the stories to develop the characters and to make sure that the things make sense to the reader and to myself as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tim Baker. We're talking about his new novel, City Without Stars. And Tim, in the second part, I want to look at each of the main characters in turn, but more specifically through those characters, one or two of the issues that those characters throw up in the story. Um, And we'll start with Pilar. Just tell us again something about who she is. Right. She's a a woman in her early 30s. She's a labour activist, and she's one of the best that her uh, union has. And what she specializes in is going into the sweatshops and organizing the women there because the sweatshops along the frontier with Mexico offer opportunity to a lot of women, particularly from central Mexico and the south, because the pay is better than they're normally going to find if they stay in their own towns. However, what they don't often realize is that the cost of living is a lot more expensive too. And the other thing is that so many women go to these towns to work in these factories that there's ordinarily there's a housing shortage. And so a lot of them are forced to live in dormitories or to live in squats in unsanitary conditions. And this feeds into the unsafe conditions because Oftentimes, municipal facilities are uh, drained. There's not enough buses, particularly at night, to take them back from the the factories. A lot of the factories have uh, 16-hour, 24-hour shifts. So Pilar is there on ground zero, working with the women, trying to explain to them the issues and trying to tell the women that they have the power because collectively they're driving the local economy, but they're really not getting very much in return. So Pilar is very aware of the problems of, let's say, globalization and NAFTA, that when these factories were created, when NAFTA was created, it was supposed to be a two-way street. It was supposed to be great for everyone because the factories were supposed to produce products at a cheaper price so that they could be sold at a, a lesser price and everyone would win. But we know that's that just didn't happen at all. And now the factories are producing for a lesser price, but the merchandise is going back to the developed countries like uh, the United States and Europe being sold for top dollar. She's passionate and she's absolutely dedicated to her cause. I mean, you've talked about the the situation for the women as workers, but you paint a pretty grim portrayal of the, you know, the position of women in Mexican society itself. Yes. The problem is that this... This is particular to the border area, and we've also seen a a huge rise in killings in the state around Mexico City itself. So it's no coincidence that these two areas are areas that employ a lot of women, and the women are the breadwinners for their, their families. The women are young because the work is grueling. And the employers tend to want women who are young, who can do long hours, who can do enormous amounts of overtime. So these conditions are quite particular. I wouldn't suggest that everywhere in Mexico it's as dangerous as it is in certain parts, but definitely Juarez, when this uh, book is set uh, in 2000, the the Juarez border zone was extremely dangerous back then. And it's simply because that there were so many women and one of the theories is that uh, some men couldn't find work. They looked around, they saw that women were being employed and it created some kind of resentment. Another one of the theories is that the women were unsafe when they were leaving work, particularly late at night. They couldn't afford cars and the buses had stopped. They had to walk back often long distances at night. Uh, so they were 
exposed. And the proof that it was dangerous is the, the huge numbers of women who were murdered. And also the relative indifference because nothing was done to make the, the lives of the, the women safer. In so many communities, once you found a sequence of shocking killings, the community would act and they would start setting up safe zones and they would start escorting people back home safely to their houses. That just didn't happen. So there was either a lack of political will or else it was deliberate. It's impossible to understand how a society could allow this to happen, but that's exactly what it did. So moving on to Fuentes, who's the the lead detective in the story and a the you know, the one good detective seemingly in a in a nest of vipers. Tell us something about the situation with the police in these border towns at that time. Right. It's very easy to demonize the Mexican police, but you have to understand that there's huge amounts of money uh, that is being made through the drug trade, and not just the drug trade, but also people smuggling and gun running and smuggling other materials, even things like avocados and cars and things like that. So there's a huge amount of money, a volume, a vast amount of money that's being turned over. And the police are paid a pittance. And also they're seeing that people in politics, police superiors are making money. So it's just an enormous well of possibility for corruption. Because it's not just the police, it's also local politicians, it's local businessmen, it's tourists who go to these border towns to buy drugs, to visit prostitutes, to gamble, to watch cockfights, to live the illicit life. So in all this turmoil, it's very hard for an average policeman, say a municipal policeman who's not earning very much, to say no to some money to turn the other way. And the other thing too is a lot of the policemen, if they don't look the other way, they're killed. So in this context, you have a person Fuentes, who is sickened to his soul with what's happening to the country that he loves. And we don't really get the full backstory of Fuentes, but we understand that there's been a a recent tragedy in his life. He took what he thought was a safe job in Tijuana dealing with labor disputes where he first ran into Pilar. And even that shocked him because he saw the potential for corruption uh, not through drugs, but through manipulation of employment practices. And now he's wound up in uh, Ciudad Real, and his mission is to try to investigate the killings and to see if he can stop them, at least find out why they're occurring and who's behind the killings. So El Santo, who's the the narco boss, and I guess the chief, well, one of the chief antagonists of the story, is... I mean, he's inherited this position relatively recently, and he's not really ready for it. That's right. He's a young man. He's bright and sharp, but no way is he clued up to deal with the enormity of running what is a multi-billion dollar business, uh, which he has inherited simply because the last four people before him have all been killed in an ongoing war between other rival cartels who are vying for control of of the border with the United States. So yes, El Santo is a man who is living a myth. He's living in this world of extreme power where he can do anything and get away with anything and have anything. And he's just not prepared for it. He's not prepared for the reality of the land 
and he's unprepared for the the real reality, which is the billions of dollars that is going across the border both ways, and the money laundering aspect of it. He's inherited the business, and he's desperately trying to stay in control of it. But he's under constant threat, both from within his own cartel and from rival cartels as well. So he's a young man who's completely out of control, in the same way that uh, Carlos, uh, another minor character who runs a fund, an investment fund, he's caught up in the dot-com bubble. And when it bursts, he's in trouble because a lot of the people who have been giving him money to invest are narcos. So if you like, El Santo is the, the illegal aspect and Carlos is the legal aspect of this phenomenon of incredible amounts of money that are coming across the border and have to be laundered one way or the other. Now, it's interesting to hear you describe him as living in a myth, because that sort of brings us to the the next character, Padre uh, Marcio, who, well, we'll get to that in a moment, but first of all, let's talk about his story arc, which I understand is also based on on a real scandal. That's right. There was um, a Mexican priest called Marcian Maciel, who started the Legion of Christ and rose to incredible power. And he he had a very successful order. He became uh, very close with Pope John Paul II. And what the Vatican didn't know, what the Mexican people didn't know, is that he was running an incredible racket. He was stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the church, from the poor. And he was also accused, before he died, of terrible crimes, molesting children, of having many children through uh, illicit affairs with women. So, if you like, he was a starting point, not so much for the character of Padre Macio, but for this dilemma of the Catholic Church and the loss of the moral integrity of the Catholic Church. When I was writing Fever City, a lot of people would say to me, well, you know, this is crazy story about the assassination of President Kennedy. How can you really believe in that conspiracy? If there really was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, everyone would know about it. And I would always point them back to the Catholic Church, because this is another incredible conspiracy. The pedophile scandal that has happened all across the globe with the Catholic Church was a little bit like the JFK scandal in the 50s and the 60s. People would talk about it, whisper about it, but there's nothing very concrete, and it's only really erupted to be a huge uh, scandal in the last 10 or 15 years. So. I wanted to look at the role of the Mexican church as a moral watchdog and how it had failed Mexico in the same way that the police had failed, in the same way that the uh, government had failed the country. The story is a system of catastrophic failures across the board that have led to the situation where the narcos have seized control over large parts of Mexico. And Padre Macio was my entry into the Catholic Church and and that part of the story. And I mentioned myth, and part of Padre Marcio's story as well concerns somebody you've already mentioned, a shaman called Pablo Grande. Yes. And these sections of the book have a sort of, often have a sort of, I guess, for want of a better word, magical realism type feel to them. And um, this is interesting in a novel that's often so brutally realistic. Tell me about that element. Well, this is an element that 
I think sprung out of my initial work in Mexico when I was working on a film and a documentary about shamanism. And I really was quite astounded by what I saw through the, the curanderos, the traditional faith healers, and quite impressed with the way very often GPs and uh, ordinary doctors in Mexico would incorporate healing, the traditional healers, as part of the prognosis for a cure. They recognized the fact that there was a very large terrain that they could use to help people get better or to cure sickness or to deal with chronic pain, things like that. So I thought it was it was great because so many of these healers operate on a community basis. It, they're within the figures within local communities and they they help people deal with pain, deal also with things like bereavement and loss. So I guess Pablo Grande emerged from that experience, my own experience with these curanderos and brujos and brujas. And I wanted someone like him, and I wasn't sure how he would interact. And I found sort of organically that Padre Masio, the, the man of, of faith, the man of the church, and the man of... Um, spirituality of a of another dimension would work together because i've seen that as well in mexico where you have people who are very catholic very religious but they also have this side to them that will uh, accept other forms of faith and other forms of spiritual expression you mentioned magic realism in a way i'm fully aware of, of of why you said that i didn't intend that but I realized afterwards that there is this element of, of magic realism. What it is, is basically, it's it's another type of reality. We were talking about El Santo, the Naku, before. His reality is so extreme from your reality or my reality that he can't recognize the reality of the ordinary soldiers that are working for him. And throughout the story, there are, there are always different realities occupying different spaces for different characters. And sometimes one of the characters goes from their reality to another reality. And that's that's what happens with Padre Masio and Pablo Grande. Padre Masio realizes the strength and the power that Pablo Grande has. And he wants to take it over himself because he's attracted to power. He's already made himself a powerful figure in the community through his work with the Catholic Church. And now he wants to seize upon Pablo Grande's spiritual power as well. Well, I said, one of the reasons I said um, magical realism, of course, and, I, and I, obviously I'm aware I'm a conflating badly various Central and South American countries and their authors here, but of course one of the major characters in the book, Felipe Mayo, Mexican's most famous writer, that's the sort of book I could imagine him writing. Exactly. That's exactly right. I think you put your finger on it there, Neil. He's an inspiration from, of course, several Mexican writers and also some South American writers as well. His backstory is that he was a diplomat like so many of the great South American writers of the 20th century. What I love about South American culture is the way they honor the writer. And they realize that a man of words or a woman of words is a perfect diplomat because diplomacy is all about saying the right thing and expressing yourself in a way that other people understand. So Felipe Mayor is exactly this kind of um, uh, mid-century South American novelist who was born in Ciudad Real. He knows what's happening and he finds himself unable to exercise control. He doesn't know what to do until he meets a woman 
who wants to tell the story and he decides that he will help her. Just bringing everything back together as I as I mentioned at the beginning like this story on one level seems to be about this city this very localized violent corrupt place where you know this violence and and crime is going on but of course even within the book those sort of tentacles of that crime go over the border into the United States and of course stretch out around the world and we're all aware now of things like you know HSBC and the Panama Papers Tell me again about how this story is really, I guess, uh, you know, a metaphor for where we are now. It's exactly right. Of course, it's set in Mexico, which is undergoing this violent crisis at the moment. It's been tortured by the narcos for the last 25 years. And in a way, I see Mexico has been martyred by the world and particularly by the United States, because it has uh, commodities that the United States wants to consume, whether they're the products of the factories, the running shoes and the T-shirts, or whether they're the cocaine that people want to use or the, the, the drugs. So, But I, I see that what's happening in Mexico and the, the issue of globalization and NAFTA, which is focused on by the, the union people in particular, is happening across the board. As you mentioned, the Paradise Papers, the Paradise Papers hadn't come out. Um, I don't even think the Panama Papers had come out when I wrote this story. But so much of the theme is about money laundering and it's about the complicity of institutes like the banks that know where this money is coming from and yet accept it. And then they take the money and they use it in their funds to create more wealth and more money. So there's a fusion in the, the story of the of the cartels where they start out as renegades in the mountains and growing their, their poppies. And then slowly but surely they become institutionalized and they owe so much money to the banks and the banks use their money that they're intertwined in a way that is almost impossible to unentwine and i think this is happening on very many levels even if you look at europe if you look at where i live right now in the south of france there are so many pieces of land that are being bought villas enormous villas are being constructed and no one ever lives there and they're obviously for money laundering purposes the question is whose money is it and why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Why aren't people trying to find out where this money is coming from, the provenance of the money? So in a way, if something comes out of City Without Stars, it, I would like it to be that the reader would ask themselves what is happening in their own country. We know about Mexico, but what is happening in their own country? Why are politicians and banks still working with criminals who are doing everything possible to launder money for other people and where did that money come from? And we know through looking at the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, a lot of this money is coming from illicit activities and large-scale tax avoidance um, and the drug trade and the weapons trade, etc. If you would read us some of City Without Stars. Yes, it's my pleasure. This is from uh, an early chapter, chapter two of City Without Stars. Sunlight forces its way through the grime of the windows, disturbing a man in his sleep. His arm scouts for a companion, but finds only an empty pillow which he gathers close to his face. A shower runs in the adjoining bathroom, steam escaping through the open door, examining the detritus of the night before, an empty bottle of tequila, a crowded ashtray, the silver foil of a torn condom pouch. Hotel rooms. 
contained universes, hidden histories for everyone except the people caught within them. The man on the bed is the past, the woman in the shower is the future. Pilar soaps her pubic hair, the hot water running out. She turns it off to build up the pressure of the cold jet, tensing her muscles under its challenge, feeling alive again. Another morning, another chance to make things right. She stands in front of the veiled mirror, her hips tilted in contemplation as she pats her body dry, water pooling at her feet. Toothpaste, hairbrush, deodorant. Her life has always been composed of modest needs combined with a desire to change the world. Paradox is not a word she uses. She glances at her watch, curses, now dresses hastily. Plain briefs, fraying bra, jeans and a tunic with a company logo on it. She pockets a pack of cigarettes and opens the door, letting traffic noise in. The man in the bed stirs, but Pilar's already gone. The room shifts with her absence, reconfigures into a dormitory, solitary with slumber. Noises retreat into the amber world of sleep. The neighboring room's radio, car horns, the hum of a distant vacuum cleaner, all vanishing as he falls into a deeper cycle, lost in dreams of his childhood, of stealing watermelons from the fields before the factories came. Esteban turns away from the sunlight, which does its best to wake him, the lost power of nature in an urban environment. Proud, but futile. In an hour, maybe less, the killers will arrive. Ten years ago would have been just a warning. Routine. Punches to the gut, slaps around the face, Maybe a broken finger, but that was ten years ago. Things change fast when people die for no reason. Fists have been replaced with razor blades, knives with guns. Now they don't even bother to mask their faces. Immunity destroys prudence, and murder becomes mundane. In an hour, maybe less, the door will be kicked open. Three strangers will enter, will douse the bed with gasoline, flick a flaming match. The mattress will leap alive, Esteban sitting up, already dead, his scream lost in the roar of combustion, the flames inside his lungs feasting on his oxygen. The killers will walk away, just one step ahead of the smoke. The dust clerk will see the license plate of the blue Ford pickup and immediately forget it, but it won't make any difference. They'll come back later and kill him anyway. So I've been talking to Tim Baker. We've been talking about his latest novel, City Without Stars, which is out now from Faber. Tim, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.